1 Corinthians 13, one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. And when you hear it in English, you immediately start looking for the bridesmaids and the flower girls because it's so frequently used in weddings. Uh, Note, Paul didn't write it for weddings, did he? He wrote it for people who couldn't get along in church. Um, We probably have, if we're to admit it, a complicated relationship with the passage on one level, I mean, it's beautiful, and it's inspiring, and then on another level, it's deeply convicting. I mean, who can, who can possibly live up to what is articulated in 1 Corinthians 13? It reminded me of a quote I had come across similarly. Like, when you encounter the face of love in Christ, you're confronted with the undeniable fact that you have never loved anyone in your life. And we won't make any progress unless we confess that despite our deep desire to be loved, we may not ourselves know what it means to love. And we see that when we look at Jesus. I think we see that too when we read 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Ah, It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, Uh, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will will come to an end. You know, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of love, would you set our hearts on fire with love for you? Would you fill our hearts that are this bottomless, feel like they have a bottomless, yeah, bottom, would you fill our hearts up with love that we might receive it from you and that we might give it uh, to one another and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, from time to time, people, you'll hear people make criticisms of the Apostle Paul, and they'll say things along the lines of, uh, Paul, cantankerous guy, Paul, very argumentative, Paul must have been a very unpleasant, uh, difficult person to be around. But I come back to this chapter, and I really have my doubts about that. I do. Um, It's hard for me to imagine 
that this passage could have been written by a founder to a community who knew him well, and he knew them well. Like, you can't write this unless they know and you know that this is kind of the person that you are. This is the kind of person Paul was. It's not to say that Paul, you know, he always lived up to the stunning picture of love every minute of every day, but it is to say that for this passage to have any credibility whatsoever with an audience, he had to make it his life's, his life's work to embody you know, the love of Jesus, and particularly the love of Jesus as we see uh, in him dying on the cross. And Paul must have done that, you know, not perfectly, but fairly well in order to be able to write this, to write to this church in this way. Uh, we're just going to go through the passage rather quickly. Uh, first off, the first section, verses 1 through 3, he talks about how vital love is, like how without it, Nothing else matters. If you recall at the beginning, you know, he talks about prophecy and, and knowledge, and he stacks up, stacks up all the impressive things that the Corinthians might do, all the premium that they placed on knowledge, all the premium they placed on their own spiritual gifts, and he multiplies it to an outlandish kind of, kind of degree. He says, you know, you, you think you have knowledge. What if you could fathom all mysteries? You think you have faith? Well, what if you have a faith that can move mountains? You think you're a spiritual people? Well, what if you gave away everything that you owned and had and even gave your body to be burned? He uses these sort of rhetorical questions um, to, to focus on all the things that they were puffed up about, all the things that they were most prone to boast in, the things that they thought made them somebody instead of a nobody. He builds up the mountain, and then, you know, he delivers the bomb, and he says, you can have all of that, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. Love is the most important thing. You can have all of that, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. I wish that our culture valued love um, differently than it does, right? There's our whole currency of evaluation in our culture I mean, money is valuable, and achievements and success, are val- that's valuable. Degrees are valuable. Comfort, valuable. Unbridled freedom to do whatever I want, valuable. Um, yeah. All of those things are treated as important. Love, love if it's important, it's, it's romantic love. It's, it's the love of, like, getting my needs met, the romantic fulfillment. But do you realize that Everything God commands of us is summarized in that little four-letter word. Everything that God commands of us is summarized by loving him and loving our neighbor. Everything that God asks of us finds its expression in that four-letter word. Everything. Like the failure to love, the failure to, to know how to love, the failure to, to know what love is, that is... That's the, greatest, that's the greatest human tragedy of all. The greatest failure of life is the failure to learn how to love. The thing that matters the most in life is, is faith expressing itself in love. And it begs the question, is that what we want to be excellent at above all things? I mean, it doesn't matter how much like, theological knowledge you have, and it doesn't 
matter how gifted you are in one capacity or another. It doesn't matter. Obviously, it doesn't matter what car you drive or what house you live in. Is this what we want to be excellent at above all things? Is this... Is this what we can like tell our children and inculcate in our children that this is the one the one thing that they can't they can't miss they can't lose? I mean they can get F's at school, but just don't get an F here. Alain de Botton is a, a Swiss philosopher, and he dropped out of a PhD program at Harvard to write his very first book entitled Essays in Love. It sold over two million copies. But what uh, launched Dubaton in, into kind of stardom was he also wrote in 2016 an article for the New York Times, and it was entitled, uh, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Here, there he is. Uh, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And that article was the most read article in the New York Times in 2016. Now, 2016 was a presidential election year. It was the year of Brexit. It was a year of an unprecedented refugee crisis, but why you will marry the wrong person was the number one read article. So obviously, it struck a chord in a lot of people. And here's how it begins. He writes, it's one of the things we are most afraid might happen to us. We, we go to great lengths to avoid it, to avoid it. and yet we, we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. It's partly because we all have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. And we seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. (laughs) Like in a a wiser, more self-aware society, a standard question on any early dinner date would be, uh, and in what ways are you crazy? For Dubuton, our our problems in relationships usually stem from a lack of self-knowledge. We tend to think that we are not crazy, And that we are not hard to live with, which then leads us to place unspeakably um, high expectations on other people. And crucial to our passage is his additional claim in the article that we really don't understand. We don't understand what love is. Uh, We've fallen prey to the romantic view that love is supposed to be instinctive, that you, you just know, you just know, or the... Uh, the intuitive view, uh, they, just, they just get me. And he says that we would be so much better off if we re-examined not our lovers, but our own view of love. Because love is something that has to be, that we must learn. It's a skill that we must grow in. We, we must grow in our ability, quote, to tolerate differences with generosity and to demonstrate forgiveness and kindness to those whom we love. And he concludes the article by saying, quote, compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be its precondition. And Dubotton, I, I think I said, he is an atheist. You know, he, he's not a Christian. But his conclusion that we must reevaluate our view of love is, I think, you know, very much the same thing that Paul is pressing us with in verses 4 through 7. Like, what, what does he mean by, by love? What does it mean? What does it mean to love? By one person's count, there are 14 facets to the diamond of love in chapter 13. And I'm not going to go through each line by line. I, there, it's pretty easy to understand. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. Uh, 
the, our problem isn't with comprehending it. Perhaps the best thing to do with a passage like this is actually just on your own, to take it really slowly and to go through line by line and reflect on three things. First, ways in which we see this quality in God and Jesus himself. Because Jesus is behind every single facet of the diamond. You can see the face of Christ in every facet of love. Number two, Uh, Ways in which we see it in ourselves or more than likely don't see it in ourselves because it can be very convicting. And then number three, ways in which if we're not like that, it it would or should work out in practice. And, you know, pray through it and, and ask the Holy Spirit to show us practical ways to implement it. You know, love is patient. Um, God, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is so patient. And he, if you think back to the, to the Bible, he was patient with Israel. He didn't destroy Israel because of her sins, no matter how, how stubborn and hard-headed she was. He patiently bore with her, eventually bringing the day to come when he would send his son to lay down his life for Israel and for the world. And therefore, we are to, we are to exhibit patient love. And our patience can can only happen if it is rooted in God's patient love for us through Jesus on the cross, you know. And what is more, the spirit of patience is, is given to us as our, as our birthright into a, the new life of the spirit that we might then be patient. We could do the same with, you know, love is kind. There we are. Love is kind and God is kind. That He is full of, the Bible calls it chesed, his loving kindness, you know. The, the Lord, he was kind with Israel. He's been kind to the world. He's been kind to us. And his kindness is supremely exhibited in Christ's death on the cross. And therefore, our kindness must be rooted in Christ's kindness to us. And what is more, the Spirit is poured into our hearts to make us kind like that. And so on. And you work through each way, each one. The, the best line of the poem, in my opinion, is found in verse 7. This description of love, ah, like if we had this description of love, like wouldn't, wouldn't the divorce rate, wouldn't it plummet if, if we believed this, that love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things? Those four verbs, bears, believes, hopes, endures, just it reminds us the course of love is never a simple or easy course. It's never smooth. You know, it speaks of hours and days and even years when we are bearing heavy loads, hard things to carry, difficult things to work through and to believe in in spite of, you know, the lack of contrary evidence. You know who, who got that verse so supremely? It was William Shakespeare. In sonnet, one of the most quoted of his sonnets, sonnet 116. Remember these words? I know I'm taking you all the way back to high school English class here, but, you know, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Like he's telling us that love is the skill of persistence. You know, love, love moves through every change of 
fortune through every time and circumstance. And it does not ask for a quid pro quo. It does not ask for a fair exchange. Love gives and gives profusely, expecting nothing in return. return. He goes on, oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Love's not time's fool. It does not withdraw when the other draws away. It does not change when the loved one changes. He goes on, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come, love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. <laughs> who does this? Like, who, who really, who really does this? Like, loves like this? That even just thinks about love like this? I mean, so very few. What passes for love today, um, in my life, absolutely, in my life, is not a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I I can imagine, I can imagine uh, this kind of love between two spouses who are deeply in love. And I can imagine, to some extent, this kind of love between a parent and their child. But can you imagine having this kind of love towards the people in this room? Because that's what he was writing, right? He was he was writing it to a, a room full of Corinthian Christians who couldn't get along, and we basically spent the last two and a half months going through this letter and discovering all the different ways that they couldn't give, get along, and they were such a, such a mess. And he's saying, no, this is, this, this is what matters the most. A few observations. Uh, Nothing exposes our need for the gospel more than the command to love like this. It just lays you low. <laughs> I, need, I need the forgiveness and grace of Jesus because I don't. Hardly any of us face each other and the world with the goal to, to do this, to love like this. We don't. It would be an unbearable burden if God didn't love us like this. And hardly any of us truly feel like this is how I am loved by God, you know. That God's love for me is so patient. Though, though I can't even smile half the time, he bears with me purposely, you know, through it all. That his love for me is kind. I mean, what could be more kind than sticking beside a man who's better known for his gloom than his cheer? That Jesus' love for me, for you, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, a love, a love that never fails, that, that's why we need to pray for each other, <laughs> that, that we would feel this, that we would know this, because this life and love is within reach of us. It is the life and love of Jesus. It is the life inspired by the Spirit, and it's the life that, that he says, I, I, I'm giving to you as a community. So number one was how vital love is. Number two was what does he mean by love? And then the final part of the passage explains simply that love is the, the, one of the things which will last into God's new world, verses 8 through 13. You know, many of the things that the Corinthians were all excited about were going to pass away. Prophecy, he says, well, who will need prophecy 
in the world to come. It, it'll all be realized. Tongues. Why would we need to speak in tongues in the world to come when everybody will understand each other perfectly well? Special knowledge. We'll know everything that we can know or need to know. But love, he says, love is, love is the future. Love is, love is on the other side of, of the river. Love is, is there and, and permanent. And that is where we are to go. Now, now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say that the only thing that will last in the next world is love. But notice Paul does not say that. He also says that faith and hope will remain. Now, isn't that a little bit strange? That faith and hope will remain in the new world. Why would you need faith and hope in the new world after the resurrection when everything has been restored? Doesn't that seem a little strange? Well, here's how I think it works. If you, if you consider that faith is a settled, unwavering trust, in God, then when you see him, when you see Jesus face to face, you don't, you're not going to abandon faith. It's just going to grow that much stronger. You'll, you'll trust him more than you ever have before. Hope, if you think similarly of hope as a settled, unwavering confidence that God will never abandon you and that he will always have more in store than you could ever ask or think, nothing could be truer of the world to come right? People have, we have this bland vision of, of heaven that it's going to be this boring place. But no, the, the God that we know in Jesus is the God of utterly generous, outflowing love. And therefore, I believe there will be no end to the new creation of this God. And that within the new age itself, there will always, always be more to hope for, more to work for, more to celebrate. So faith and hope, they will remain after the restoration of all things. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Well, First John 4, 8. Because God is love. He is an infinite, inexhaustible fountain of love. I want you just, you may even want to close your eyes for a minute to imagine this. I'm using, this language was uh, from the, written by like America's greatest theologian of the, 17th century. And he says, just imagine, you know, that heaven, heaven is a world full of love. He says, there dwells God the Father, and so the Son, who are united infinitely dear and incomprehensible together in mutual love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And he's on the other side of the river. There dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace and Love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out, into, out his soul unto death for it. He's the one by whom all God's love is expressed to his people. And there, too, is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is shed abroad in the hearts of all the church. There in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to, to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. 
There the fountain overflows in streams and, and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at it and to swim in it, yay, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. Love is going to be the way of the world to come, and Paul's whole argument is, if that's the case, then we got better get trained on it now, so we'll be prepared for it. If we're really going to develop this love, and I've already kind of alluded to it, we have to have a powerful experience of God's love for ourselves, and that's really what we should be praying for each other and for others, that we need to meet the love of God in Christ. Like, we need to receive that love. If we're ever, ever going to even approximate this high standard that he lays out for us, we need to have our hearts, like, set on fire by his love. I'll finish with uh, a story. Uh, Mike Kelly, a pastor friend of mine up in Seattle, he told me this. So when I left the church in Boise, Mike came in, and he was the interim pastor for about a year. And uh, he, he had an aunt and an uncle who were married for 49 years, and then the uncle died. One year and one day after uh, his uncle's funeral, his aunt uh, got a call on the phone, and it went like this, you know, Hi, uh, this is Bill. I don't know if you remember me, but we dated right after the war uh, and just before you got married. And I really loved you then, but I didn't have the guts to ask you to marry me. When you married uh, Mike's uncle, you know, uh, I, knew that I, I knew that I would never fall in love with anybody else again. And, and I have waited 50 years. I saw his death notice. It a year ago, and out of respect to him and respect to you, I decided I would wait a year and a day, and now it is, um, I'm calling you, and I'm wondering, could we go out to lunch together? And this man in his family was known as as the the guy who, who who never married because he was in love with another woman who had married someone else for 50 years. Amazing. And we are, when we are confronted with the miracle that God, that God could possibly love us like that, but, but infinitely more so. I mean, how much more amazing it, is anything? Can anything compare to that? You know, put together all the tenderest love that you know of, the deepest love that you have ever felt the strongest love that has ever been poured out on you, and heap upon it all the love uh, the human hearts in the world have. And then multiply that, all that love that has been amassed, multiply it by infinity, and you will begin perhaps to have some faint glimpse of God's love for you in Christ, his child. Amen.